0: Hello and welcome to Learning to Fly, the Science for the Anthropocene podcast, brought to you from the Lancaster Environment Centre of Lancaster University. I'm David Tyfield and I'm the Professor of Sustainable Transitions and Political Economy at LEC. And I'm delighted that you're joining us today where we're going to be discussing perhaps the central issue, the issue underpinning this podcast as a whole, which is what do we do now about climate action? And I'm joined today by two fantastic guests who I'm very much looking forward to discussing this with. Rupert Reid is an Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of East Anglia, former spokesperson for Extinction Rebellion and now co-director of the new Climate Majority Project. He's authored several books, including This Civilization is Finished, Parents for a Future, and most recently, I think, Why Climate Breakdown Matters, and is often on the media, on the Today programme, Question Time, Newsnight, Politics Live, Al Jazeera, etc. And with Rupert is Liam. Liam Katvener is a cognitive and social scientist devoted to using his understanding of human motivation, ideology, and economics to aid more effective responses to the climate crisis. He has worked on three continents over 20 years, doing applied social research he co-founded Life Itself, which is a community for responding to the polycrisis, and he's written a book on how Western ideology contributes to climate change in action. Rupert and Liam, welcome.
1: Pleased to be here, David.
0: Yes, so yeah, really looking forward to this conversation with you. As ever, a huge amount of potential stuff to cover, but let's dive straight in. You may or may not know that uh, we have a standard opening and closing question for the podcast, And that opening question is, is your science fit for purpose in the 21st century? So for you, Liam, I assume it's cognitive and social sciences. And for you, Rupert, that would refer to philosophy and social sciences. So again, is your science fit for purpose in the 21st century? Uh, Liam, do you want to go first?
1: Yeah, I can uh, talk about that. Um, I would say in a a way, not overall, but so my journey was basically being an applied economist and saying, wow, none of this actually describes anything, you know, as far as <laughs> neoliberal economics or neoclassical economics, there's a lot of assumptions here. Well, why do people believe this? Uh, it's not because it's true, a lot of the assumptions. So why do they? And that led me actually to cognitive science, and in particular, a then small part of cognitive science that refuse to treat emotions and cognition as separate. Uh, so I worked with people who are very close to like uh, cognitive dissonance theory and then on embodied cognition. So this is very much like humans are embedded in their environment. Uh, and my PhD was on how people think as, I would call it now a superorganism. It was about human mimicry and how people uh, think collectively using emotional contagion. Essentially, Uh, so I think there are branches, heterodox branches of uh, of cognitive science, which are getting pretty current. I'm a kind of a a Varela person. I don't know if listeners know who Francisco Varela is, but Mm -hmm. um, he he sort of founded the uh, an active approach. It's it's called uh, to cognitive science. uh, Started Mind and Life, the Dalai Lama, uh, and that is very much phenomenology led uh also group phenomenology so taking people as part of a linked system uh, and so i think there are there's kind of, there's heterodox approaches which are very useful and, and current and there's also a lot of old uh and calcified ideas out there so yeah you know, if you look in the right
2: place, you can find useful science.
0: Yeah, that's that's a good start. Yeah. How about you, R- Rupert? Um, how 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 do philosophy and the social sciences look from your perspective?
2: Well, yes. Yeah, so my background is very different from uh, Liam's in the sense that uh, I've been heavily involved in the philosophy of social science from a broadly Wittgensteinian point of view. Philosophy uh, with my main man Ludwig Wittgenstein. And this is a perspective which is quite critical of the uncritical use of the scientific method with regard to uh, human beings. So I've been very concerned across my career to emphasize the importance of um, understanding things, quote, from the inside, unquote, and um, have sometimes made uh, critiques of the way that uh, cognitive science has been employed in relation to understanding human beings in relation to psychology, um, economics, sociology. But it seems to me that Liam and I actually have common ground in terms of the way that we like to uh, think broadly, um, one might say phenomenologically about human beings. We're interested in getting closer to the actual experience um, of life, of uh, of the mind, of the body. Um, we're interested in the contribution that can be made from non-scientific sources such as uh, meditation uh, to this kind of understanding. And uh, we think that there is, well, plenty of exciting stuff to explore here. I don't know if you think that's a fair appraisal, Liam.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, Wittgenstein, of course, is Rupert and I actually met uh, hmm. originally because we were both fans of McGilchrist's work. Yes, uh, and I and I noticed that he was a Wittgensteinian. I found uh, Wittgenstein quite useful in cognitive science uh, as far as uh, clarifying the mind. You know, his approach to understanding conceptual confusion. Right, scientists uh, mm-hmm. oftentimes like to argue over definitions or. People like to waste time uh, arguing over definitions, and Wittgenstein's approach actually had very little to do with that. Of Conceptual clarification was always useful uh, to me. So uh, right away, a lot of common ground.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Okay, thank you for that. Now, of course, I've invited you primarily onto the podcast, not because of your eminent capacities as academics and scientists, but in fact as leads of Uh, the recently launched Climate Majority Project. And I just want to quickly flag for listeners that this isn't a departure for the podcast. The podcast is a podcast about science and its role in and its transformation through the Anthropocene. But I think it's really important for us to discuss the Climate Majority Project for two really important reasons. First of all, because uh, in my engagement with it so far, it makes a very strongly compelling case in its own right for the backdrop of a science for the Anthropocene, uh, so it's strongly resonant with this podcast and its underpinning, uh, but also because in fact the, this, the Climate Majority Project and your work has actually got a, a lot to say directly about the issue of science and its role uh, in helping and uh, getting us through these, these challenging uh, issues. So we do have a lot of potential things that we could talk about. But I think, whereas I'm sure, you know, since the launch, Rupert, you've, you've probably been tackling a lot of uh, journalistic or political discussion about the merits of different tactics of climate mobilization. I want to maybe focus elsewhere or, you know, deeper, maybe do yeah. some, some c- conceptual Un- confusion uh, t- t- to follow yeah. in line from what we've just been talking about. And and if that gives a bit of airtime for the climate majority in the project, I'm delighted about that. So why don't we start with that briefly? Uh, and uh, maybe we'll start with you, Liam. Just tell the listeners briefly, this is your elevator pitch moment, What what is the Climate Majority Project?
1: Sure. The Climate Majority Project is a response to the fact that uh, climate concern has grown massively. It's uh, spread across the population, but climate action has not uh the majority of people are not attracted to either the tactics or the culture of of climate action uh, and so what we're doing is is creating a, a place where people can uh come together who want to create mainstream climate action find their work to do uh as part of the mainstream climate response
0: excellent and uh, very pithy as well thank you for that so A key message that I take from the Climate Majority Project is, you know, this building of bridges, an actual majority, recognizing that there is a majority, uh, but that it needs further mobilization, uh, and welcoming to all shades of opinion, not just as it were, uh, if, and I say this without any sort of disparagement, you know, the, the usual suspects, but with that, What I understand to be, you know, maybe the starting point to to get a bit more into uh, what it is that you're trying to do with the Climate Majority Project. I'm just going to say CMP because it's uh, easier and shorter. Um, I see step one, or maybe thread one of four that you map out uh, in your theory of change, as what you call truthfulness, um, and with that narrative shift. So this is a narrative shift from the long-standing. Warnings that uh, the public have been fed that we are at five to midnight regarding climate, uh, whereas the Climate Majority Project's starting point, what its sort of difference, to put it this way, is that we are not at five to midnight any longer. We are at five past midnight. And uh, this is issued, for instance, not just in your launch, but uh, there's a very important role that science plays in this, and uh, I need to uh, declare my own active involvement uh, in this with uh, with some of your colleagues and uh, pulling together a letter that was published at the end of June, um, signed by over 50 senior climate academics, declaring the uh, Emperor's knee close on 1.5 degrees and that the time has passed for protecting the public from hard truths. But the reason I was so excited to be involved in that letter was because of the clear resonance of that clarity, that truthfulness, uh, and the central metaphor of this whole podcast. The podcast is called Learning to Fly, precisely pointing at the idea that we have already gone over the cliff. We're not going to learn to fly. We're not going to be forced to learn to fly if we're still uh, peering over the edge. Uh, And indeed, this is a metaphor you also used repeatedly in your new book. So, you know, lots of meeting of minds there. But I don't think this is the place to labour this key point about being five past midnight or going over the cliff and to rehearse all the evidence in detail. But I do think it's still worth laying out quickly, and not least uh, for this podcast, you know, again, just to motivate it. So can I just ask, again, briefly, um, and perhaps again, this might be for you, Liam. Why are we now at five past midnight? Have we really gone over the cliff?
1: Well, uh, given that we, we just actually had uh, the kind of planet's temperature actually over 1.5 degrees C for the first time in history uh, earlier this month, um, you know, that's one indication of where we're at. Um, real off the facts 94% of scientists uh, in anonymous surveys. Climate scientists, that is, admit that we're bound to go across 1.5. Uh, there's less than 10 years of budget left at current emissions rate for 1.5 uh, to be crossed. Um, the amount of inertia in the system is enormous. Uh, I mean, and there is, of course, a lot of forewarning for all of that in that we've been hearing that now is our last chance for about 20 years. And there hasn't been anything... Uh, that's ever looked like a response to a last chance uh, in terms of the trajectory of our, our carbon emissions. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, Rupert, maybe you, you'd like to add something to that, but um, I think for, it's, it's really a question of, okay, technically or sort of physically it's possible to, mm reach 1.5 and that's kind of what we're talking about. Sometimes we say, well, it's still possible to hit 1.5, but we're not talking about is that, and, in all practical sense uh, with any type of accounting for the amount of political inertia that there is, uh, and, and not, you know, a, a sort of particularly anything, but the most grotesquely optimistic assumptions about, um, a, well, lack of, or about how political inertia can be overcome uh, will lead you to the conclusion that we're not going to make the 1.5 um, yeah. boundary, you know. So,
2: yeah, I think that's <laughs> the least that we can say. Yes. Uh, I think that there's a giggle factor now, frankly, around anyone who still talks with a straight face about staying below 1.5, which, much remember, is supposed to be the safe guardrail, the, the upper limit. Uh, and we're not safe. We are um, flying off the cliff. Uh, there, is, there is no more time to make things right. Uh, what we have to do now with the time that is given to us is to make things less wrong, uh, to, sh- to take an adaptation more seriously uh, and to uh, change the narrative, to update the story um, in a way that reflects this uh, this grim. But if we actually face it, empowering reality
0: yeah great thanks Rupert so I mean let's just stick with that point in, in particular why is it so important to lock on to that narrative shift and and in particular why is it so important for science also to step up to that challenge and, and really say what it sees in private in public
1: I mean it's sort of straightforward in, in the fact that look If you're going to have the level of motivation uh, that's required to make the sort of shift that we need, it's impossible to really imagine that coming without widespread awareness of how much trouble we're in, right? If things are kind of sort of bad and we have uh, the, the sort of negative emissions technology that supposedly we do have coming down the pipe. Then
0: we're Literally, not going to have, yes.
1: <laughs> right? right. <laughs> then we're not going to have the emissions reductions in the in the short term that we need to have, given that there's absolutely no assurances that negative uh, emissions technology are going to show up and save the day. And as a matter of fact, that they, they they probably won't, right? Uh, and so this is, I mean, it's not even really it's sort of theoretically possible, uh, not even physically possible in many yes. ways for us to miss this. Uh, crossing. We're, over we're hedging
0: planet. on hedging. There. Yeah, yes.
1: exactly. Yeah. And so, and if, if you're not going to say that, how, and we we're living in a democracy, right? This is basically what we're talking about is that institution led uh, climate action, which is where we've, we've been so far has failed already. And so part of it is saying, look, institution led climate action has failed. We need population-led climate. The population needs to lead the institutions. The institutions have decisively shown that they are not going to summon from within uh, the ability to move industry, our built environment, every other aspect of our society to uh, the, the kind of... Oh, with the type of urgency that we need to, to get to negative emissions in very short order. Right, And so... How is that going to happen without the, the large part of the population knowing precisely how bad things are? We don't really see a way. There's been sort of this, it's another, frankly, optimistic assumption of the whole climate action enterprise, that there's some way to get society to move without uh, in, this, in, in the direction of net zero emissions. Uh, very abruptly without breaking the bad news without anybody having to be the bearer of uh, extremely bad news we just don't think that's possible right and so the the rest of the strands i think it it might be useful to point out at this juncture are kind of an answer to the question well aren't we just going to depress people well not if you create the right conditions after you start with the the hard truth
0: yeah that's really interesting liam and especially being put that way, I like very much what you were saying there about uh, institutional approaches have have failed and we need to move to a population-led approach. I mean, what that suggests to me, or what it speaks to me as well, is that you also said we live in a democracy. And, you know, obviously one of the uh, lessons that we have from autocracy and authoritarianism through the 20th century, uh, in particular, is that lies, um, living in context of lies and institutional and uh, constitutional lies even, uh, leads to just the, the whole system rotting and personal corruption, uh, corruption you know, personal uh, spiritual corruption, for, for want of a better word, uh, which of course then saps all will to, to do anything. So there's something, and you know, one doesn't need to uh, scratch the surface of the news these days to see that there is a, a widespread sense of this institutional rot and with that, therefore, in that context, the truth-telling, even if it's a, a rather sort of hard-to-swallow truth, can be a bracing and uh, invigorating phenomenon or step rather than a dispiriting one, because at least there's a truth there which uh, allows for that, that shift from the existing institutions to the populations being determined to remake them. So what this points to me very much about is you know just how profound, a civilizational challenge it is that we're talking about. We're not just talking about reducing emissions, right? It's much, much more important than that. And I think this takes us to the other three strands. So, I mean, we've gone on to that just when talking about the first of your four strands, which is um, narrative shift. But just that already has opened up the window to you know, a much wider uh, agenda. And I think many of those points are, are taken up by the, uh, the other three threads uh, in your theory of change. So just briefly, first of all, can you just tell the listeners what those other threads are? And then we'll get on to unpacking them a bit more in, in, in a bit more detail.
1: Sure. So the, the other three strands are culture of resilience and awareness. Um, which means basically being able to handle the news together uh, to have a sort of collective, if you like to say, inner work uh, in order to handle uh, the difficulties emotionally where we're at pragmatic action. So having a part to play in a response uh, personally so that everybody has one and then shared understanding is the fourth one, or you mm-hmm. could say collective sense-making would be a, uh, another term, which some people in the more academic audience might prefer. Mm. And, and that is having a sense of being part of a shared endeavor and having a coherence in how we're going to approach this. Right. And, and those are the, the conditions under which people create, well, hard truth turns into motivation, right? If you know the truth, you have people to to hear it with. So you're not facing it alone. You have something that you can do. And that something that you can do feels like part of a coherent overall plan then you know, that's sort of like Lord of the Rings territory. It's very motivating. People don't have to curl up in despair. The truth can turn into motivation. And so uh, you know, scientifically, if you'd like, one of the mistakes that's been made, we think, in uh, climate action is uh, giving isolated people and psychology experiments bad news, uh, studying what happens to them in isolation, and then concluding that that is the response to uh, a, a truth telling message. Whereas, you, I mean, you simply can't say that a uh, situationist approach to social psychology says that of course the situation determines the response. So basically what we're saying is, you know, very much within mainstream social psychology And that way, well, let's create the, the actively, the, the types of environment uh, in which people can convert a message of a uh, dire situation into motivation
0: fantastic yes so i mean we're we're touching there already on paradigmatic problems in some of the background and so the common sense the supposedly scientifically evidenced background about you know the dangers of sharing bad news well if you have a very individualized paradigm of the science of that, then that's going to tell you a, a certain set of answers, which may not be the case uh, in uh, the, the very different context that uh, that you're talking about. Yeah, that's really important. And what I take from those four is, of course, first of all, I th- that they do add up, and I encourage listeners to to look uh, at the, the the CMP and its website and to to uh, engage with these four threads, both in order to understand them, but also, of course, to do them. They make sense as a really invigorating program in themselves. But for this podcast, I think they also have a lot to say about science. They illuminate how science currently thinks about itself today, uh, how it needs to change as well. And with the former against the latter, also sort of showing up various rather fundamental, I mean, going back to what you were saying about Wittgenstein and conceptual confusion, I think that this points to a very important and necessary and deep unpicking of some of the conceptual conflations that we have uh, within ourselves and in society more broadly about what science is uh, and uh, what role it plays. So, I think we can sort of unpick some of those as, as we go through on these the other three threads. So let, let's turn to the second one now, which is to remind everybody, it's creating cultures of awareness and resilience. Now, I can see how, given what you both said about that opening question and uh, your bios, um, how uh, you both came to seeing this is such an important issue. In particular, the, what I want to unpack there is... Um, the non-negotiable passpoint that you're flagging up here of admitting emotions uh, into the work of responding to the climate and ecological emergency, and especially uh, those strongest and most fundamental of emotions of love, fear, and grief, and perhaps grief above all. Now, um, in your latest book, Rupert, you uh, you write movingly and illuminatingly about grief, and uh, specifically climate and eco-grief. Uh, and you have a whole chapter on this. Mm. Why is grief so important here?
2: So let's start out by noting the point that our second strand uh, is called cultures of resilience. So it's important that this is something that happens together. And you mentioned, Christ, yeah. David, the individualization that is so common in our society. We're trying to uh, oppose that, find a way around that. So it's worth noticing, for example, that... In most human societies hitherto, and even still today in ours, with things like funerals and wakes and so on, grief and mourning have been very collective and often, in many cases, actually very public um, undertakings. But certainly collective. Something I think is is missing in our society is the full collectivity of that, and this matters because, well. We are in a time, tragically, when there is going to be a rising tide for a long time to come of ecological grief and of climate grief. Yeah. Uh, and if we try to deal with it individually, uh, we're going to we're going to fall short. So we need to we need to do it together. We need to find new ways of uh, of doing grief because this ecological and climate grief is, to some significant extent, at least at the scale it's at and the constancy. Uh, a new phenomenon. Now, quite a lot of the conversation, once people started to realise that it was critical to take the emotions seriously in relation to climate and ecology, Uh, and this has been a a very serious feature of the the last several years of of activism and awakening, Uh, it's very clear in the way that Greta Thunberg handles herself it's very clear in what we did in Extinction Rebellion in, in, for example, going off onto TV programs and radio programs and, and being very authentic uh, with the presenters, with the viewers about where we were at and how it made us uh, feel. And we want to continue and, in fact, deepen uh, that uh, trend. Uh, once people started taking seriously uh, the, uh, the eco-emotions, if you will, they tended to start with either anger or fear, uh, and and anger and fear are both important and potentially uh, useful. You know, anger is a is obviously a rage against injustice. It comes originally from from care, from love. I would argue uh, in that we are um, angry or enraged by things that are being done which put those who we care about in uh, jeopardy. Uh, fear is also very important. Um, fear is, uh, is a powerful force, uh, a mighty power. Fear um, powers nightmares and nightmares are, are powerful. Um, anyone who tells you it's all about uh, having a dream rather than uh, a nightmare um, doesn't actually understand a lot about how human history, politics and the mind uh, uh, works. Yeah, dreams and positive visions and so on are absolutely vital but sometimes fear is, uh, is the mobilizer that we need. Uh, and fear too comes ultimately, I argue, from, uh, from love. We, uh, we fear for those who we love when they are in jeopardy, including uh, ourselves. Mm-hmm. And if you're not sometimes afraid in relation to the climate situation, then you're not paying attention. But the argument that uh, I make, and this comes partly from my teacher, Joanna Macy, who's done a great deal to promote collective practices in this area. The argument that I make is that actually grief may be the most powerful one of the lot and relative to its power, at least uh, the most neglected, because I think that deeper than and more kind of moving ultimately than fear or than anger is the power of heartbreak, the power of deep sadness. The fact that ecological grief is now uh, inevitable and is happening Uh, over and over again. And it is an incredibly powerful expression of love, so much so that when something or someone uh, that we love is ripped away from us, and we are forced into uh, grief, often the way that we respond to that um, is, is seemingly irrational. But in my philosophical work, and in Why Climate Breakdown Matters, I argue that it isn't actually irrational. I'm talking about, for example, the way that people sometimes go into a kind of denial Hmm. uh, and are unable to fully come to terms, at least for a while, with the loss of the loved one or thing or space or being. And my argument is in part that these various features that are commonly accrued to significant grief of, as the journey goes, um, denial and uh, bargaining and anger Hmm. and uh, depression, even, um, that these are actually rational responses. They're all part of the journey to, and all in a certain sense, part of the phenomenon of acceptance, the part of healing a, a rift in the actual fabric of one's lived world. And that is, of course, literally what's happening. Yes. So we're getting rips in the in the tears of our world. That's what it is when um, you suddenly get a whole lot of um, creatures going extinct, or when beloved and vital ecosystems are are torn uh, to pieces. It's actually hard to credit. It's hard to cope with. And if we're not uh, monsters, uh, we will feel um, grief over it. And the point is, and this is what Joanna Macy helped to teach me and what I now teach in the, the courses and so forth that I teach on this, and what is one of the central facets of our thread two in our climate majority project theory of change. The point is, when you allow yourself to feel this grief, and it's the same with with fear and, and anger and any of the so-called negative emotions, the difficult emotions, when you allow yourself to actually feel it, when you stop trying to keep it at arms bay, when you process it along with other people, when you feel it and see it and know it moving through you, it doesn't just stick around and become an interminable uh, weight uh, forever. Mm-hmm. It turns into something else. It turns into a kind of energy, among other things. It turns, into, it turns back into love again in an obvious way. It turns into passion for change because, of course, ultimately the only way we can stop the endless uh, build-up of ecological grief is if we tackle the root causes of it. If we stop there being so many things to grieve over. So this is the ultimate power and meaning of grief. It's a beautiful testimony to our humanity and to our profound connectivity, not only with each other, but with the, uh, the natural world. It's an expression of our love and it ultimately demands re-expression in the form of action. And that's where we start to get to the third uh, thread uh, in our theory of change in a, a really powerful way.
0: That's fantastic. Thank you, Rupert. Before we turn to that third thread, though, I mean, yeah, that was, I mean, I've read the book. I won't say I enjoyed the book because it's so, it's, it's about climate catastrophe, right? But um, it's... <laughs> yes. Uh, it certainly moved me profoundly, um, mm. and um, you. you know, I'm moved again now listening to you talk about that. Mm. Uh, and one of the things that to bring it from that again to the the agenda specifically for this podcast, which is, you know, I'm I'm a firm believer and supporter in science. I think it's a wonderful thing, and I think it has a, an extraordinarily important role to play here, if it's doing the right job, right, mm. and Science, I think, needs to change quite profoundly in order to be able to do that job. And there are certain aspects of what you've just been talking about, which I think really show up current problems in the self-understanding of science. I don't believe science is unable to deal with what you're talking about or able to harness it even. It's just that for the time being, its own current locked in self-conception rules out A lot of this. And so let me just give you a few things. The first one is simply that science thinks of itself as being unemotional, proudly unemotional, Mm -hmm. uh, deliberately Mm -hmm. abstracting from the emotions. And of course, that also filters through to the science of the emotions, which has had to fight tooth and nail to be taken seriously, even within psychology. But then there's another aspect of this, which is what you were just talking about, which is that actually, there is an extraordinary rationality to emotion, to yes. strong emotion. Yes, um, It's not irrational, it, the irrationality is calling it irrational. Um, yes. But on top of that, as the extra sort of unbearable twist for, for a purely cognitive view of science, is that the truth of grief is paradoxical, as you were just talking about, right? There's almost yeah. um, a mysticism to the way in which it makes stuff happen. So it's both rational and paradoxical, which makes it doubly paradoxical. And so, you know, Mm. just completely beyond the pale for a certain view of science. And then Mm. the the final point there would be uh, in terms of uh, what all this has to do. And it takes me back to what you were saying about uh, the processing, the individual processing emotion. I mean, what a terrible thought that is. How many people, and you know, through COVID, for instance, uh, have had to grieve alone. Um, Mm, or or do just as a matter of course, that grieving is now a private and rather shameful thing that you do uh, uh, in your bedroom, that compare that to the acceptable emotions. There are acceptable emotions within the scientific enterprise, but they are emotions of competition, of of winning the grant, of uh, personalised achievement and acclaim. It's essential sociality of these emotions. Also, I think militate strongly against the the current conception of science in, in many quarters. I, I don't know, just any thoughts on that, you know, perhaps again oh. specifically to you but as someone who hasn't yeah. is in a university, right?
2: Uh, well absolutely but then I'll also hand over to Liam who's yeah. very expert in this area. Um, yeah, just briefly I, I, I agree with what you said. Uh, philosophy and science have traditionally, and until relatively recently, by and large, tended to have a pretty hard time uh, with uh, emotions. One of the ways in which this causes real problems in relation to the state that the world is in now is that scientists tend still to think that they ought to try to remain somehow kind of calm emotionally detached etc even when they're presenting extremely upsetting results about uh, the destruction of uh, of nature or future potential climate scenarios what some scientists are now starting to understand is that uh, that is a um, a serious error mm. uh, and that they need to that they need to be congruent as human beings as parents etc with the gravity of the what they are forced, and of course the word gravity is, is linked etymologically to, to the word grief, yeah. the gravity of what they are being forced to uh, disclose, and this so this of course connects back to strand one of our theory of change again. Right. You know this is and how they're all really intertwined. That uh, that truthfulness about all of this, including about full disclosure. Of the of the scientific facts and full disclosure of how one, they make one feel—that is actually now part of what we need to demand. I'm afraid of our scientists. It's the importance, for example, of a program like Netflix's program Breaking Boundaries, which is very unusual in that it's an instance in the popular media, uh, although it should be a lot more popular, if many po- many more people saw breaking boundaries, I think it would help to literally change the world. It's an instance in the media of scientists actually showing how they feel about the truth that they're telling you about the breaking of our planetary uh, boundaries, and it is incredibly powerful mm. to watch. Somewhat similarly the moment in David Attenborough's uh, Netflix documentary My Life on This Planet, his sort of autobiographical documentary, where he kind of reflects back on his life and the decline he's seen. And at one point, he just kind of stops and bends forward and puts his head in his hands for a while silently. Um, it's, it's that kind of mm-hmm. moment that we need, that kind of congruence that we need to really land with people where we're at. And when you get that, when you get strands one and two of our theory of change, truthfulness and, uh, and shared inner work coming together, then, uh, as I say, that is the most powerful possible basis for moving into powerful, tangible, pragmatic action together. But before we get right into that, Liam, anything you want to add to this vein of the conversation?
0: Yeah, like yeah. Liam, just before you speak, if I could just tweak the question a little bit, right, or, or add a little bit in there for you to to respond to, which is really, what are, what are your thoughts regarding? Th- the broader challenges of accepting emotion in science or professional and academic thought. I mean, how deep do these challenges go? And and do you think even that there's a lever for needed change through science onto the broader culture?
1: I'll start with one thing, which is to say, to underline what uh, Rupert said before, it's actually even more important when we think about that scientists are some of the few people who can credibly imagine the future Right of the, the distant future, because it takes a certain depth of understanding. When you're, say, a climate scientist and you're pouring over an understanding of the Earth system for a living, and imagining what the future might look like for a living, uh, that puts you in a, a kind of rarefied position to actually have an emotional relationship with the future that's kind of credible and based on science. Mm. Right. So it's not just that people. Communicate through emotion, it's that few other people are qualified to communicate emotionally about the future besides scientists who are understanding so far in an abstract way what a future 10, 20 years uh, is going to look like, right? And this has been the whole whole problem the entire time that we've been dealing with climate change. It, it, It will never go away because the future is always going to be different. Than where we've gotten to so far, we'll never be able to understand just how bad things are going to get by looking out the window. And scientists are one of the few people who can emotionally communicate about that with credibility, right? Uh, and then to answer your, your second part of your question, absolutely, uh, going back, I, it's it is this there's a we have to reckon though with ideology. The problem uh, with things like this are that we we can get optimistic about what's coming out in science, but we also have to understand as far as the connections between emotion and thought. But it's also important to recognize that something like cognitive dissonance was around in the 1950s, right? And it's usually understood as sort of, oh, well, how do we explain why people keep on, say, smoking despite the fact they know they're going to die? Well, actually, quitting smoking also reduces dissonance, right? It's, a, it's basically there's an emotional feeling when you have parts of your mind in conflict. So I have a habit of smoking cigarettes. However, I know that that is not consistent with me continuing to live, which is something I'm quite attached to. (laughs) I can do one of two things. I can stop smoking that reduces the dissonance, or I can somehow find a way to avoid the knowledge that it, it does uh, reduce my lifespan. And that also reduces dissonance. But in both cases, uh, it's an emotional response, and that's something that actually Festinger, Festinger, Leon Festinger, who created that theory, was saying since the beginning, and which has had a, a great deal of empirical support, but just never really registered because of this deep-rooted ideology that somehow uh, we can separate ourselves from emotion. I mean, which is to say that we can, we can, to some degree, because there's a, a kind of like legalistic detachment that uh, like a, a, a judge is supposed to uh, practice when somebody comes into their courtroom and you you, you may have an emotional uh, disposition towards one or the other, say, person in front of you as a judge, but your your job is to sort of feel it and dissociate from it.
0: Right, yeah. Uh,
1: whereas what we need is emotional skills to accept our biases, look into them, uh, and notice things like that we need motivation to accomplish scientific theories Uh, we need uh motivation to do really hard work right i mean another uh way in which strand two connects to the rest of the strands is also strand four which maybe we can talk about in a little while Mm -hmm. right is that when it's going to take us realizing that more of the same is not on tap in order to really invest ourselves in imagining the future, right? Like the last time that there was a lot of great imaginative work going on in economics, I would say it was really in the, around the nineteen fifties when we were in a time between worlds. Uh, sort of World War II had happened; it wasn't clear yet what the rest of history was going to look like. And as soon as there is a consensus. Around the way things are, mm-hmm. or a sense of reality uh, s- starts to sink in around the way things are, uh, then it actually gets hard for people even to imagine yes. a future, because because imagining a different future is almost painful. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we even really know that that's where we're at when we're we're trying to think about a, a different future. That in fact, uh, there's a sort of gravity of uh, that's involved in. Of the present, uh, when there when there's a high deal of consensus about the way things are and will be, uh, that doesn't really allow our imagination to depart, especially the imagination of enough people in a field to really talk kind of seriously about a potential alternative. So, really letting in the fact that uh, we need change, doing the emotional work of letting go of the future we thought we had, is always, is uh, in- intensely important. And I think uh, a science. It, Cognitive science is starting to understand these types of things, and if, the more we can bake that awareness uh, into the process of doing science, and create for ourselves the uh, emotional uh, environments which allow truly imaginative uh, enterprises, and even to accept the necessity of those, uh, and then yeah, it it will enable uh, science to contribute more to. Both strands three and strands four, which we'll talk about in a
0: minute. So l- let's move on to strand three. Here we're on to uh, tangible, practical action, which, of course, is the, in a sense, the, the the meat of all of this. We, you know, we actually want to be doing things to to be changing the course of uh, the current trajectories um, of, that we're on. So it's you know it's a crucial step, and. I also see it resonating, being informed by the growing body of what I understand from psychology, social psychology, eco-psychology, uh, which is recognizing that, um, as it were, action comes first, to uh, to, to, to use a, a phrase, um, and then uh, mind or attitude change, rather than the, the rationalistic presumption, which is that, first of all, you you, know, you sort out what you think and then you act upon it. And we, we, we discussed some of this in a... Previous podcast as well. So first of all, just again, perhaps briefly, tell us more about this thread. Why is why is it so important? And maybe less obviously, what does it look like? Is any detail on what these tangible practical actions look like? Perhaps you could, for instance, tell listeners about the incubator.
1: Yeah, sure. So um, the majority of basically, it looks like everybody finding their work to do using the power that they have in their own lives to. Uh, play their part in change. For most people, that is going to come at the community level or at the workplace. Uh, so the the projects that we've focused on in our incubator, which is focused on um, helping efforts by people uh, who are appealing to people who want to who are climate concerned, uh, but who are not the usual suspects, to give them routes to action, uh, which are not. Uh, nonviolent direct action, but are are very effective, right? So those are the types of projects that we've been helping to get along. One of those, for example, would be community climate action, uh, which is helping communities at the um, parish council level uh, create uh, climate action plans for getting to net zero, appealing to largely conservative audiences. Uh, so far, they've been based mainly in Suffolk, but they're expanding outwards. Uh, They have a very different demographics from something like uh, transition towns. Mm -hmm. Um, Another is Lawyers for Net Zero, uh, which is appealing also to quite unusual climate suspects. And these are sort of in-house legal counsel of of the largest companies in the UK. So in-house lawyers who are understanding better uh, the legal implications of getting to uh, zero emissions and advising their companies, uh, well, teaming together to advise their companies accordingly. Okay. And at, at the same time, uh, that group is developing a methodology which can be generalized to other, other kinds of contexts.
0: Yeah, well, that all sounds uh, very exciting and encouraging. And, and, and you know, as in the title for this thread, eminently pragmatic. Let's again, though, turn to science and Again, it seems to me that what you're flagging up here is you know, right on all fours with the the ideas of a science for the Anthropocene, in terms of science being key uh, in assisting much of the active practical learning that's going to be undoubtedly needed behind a lot of change that's that's uh, that's ahead of us. So just to use some examples from previous episodes of the podcast, we're here talking about um, integrated pest management to to save our insects. Uh, we're talking about urban al- agriculture uh, to reduce the impact on land, working with coral reefs, working with nutrients and nitrogen and phosphorus. So I, mean, I, I can see how all of this aligns very strongly with you know a, a, a repurposing, a, a, a new agenda for science. But also, I think, Again, as before, in the, in, the, in the previous two threads, I think this agenda also makes profound demands on science regarding the need to change its current form. And again, sorting out some of this conceptual confusion, analytically distinguishing what science is, what it has to be, what it, it, what it is in itself, in other words, what it can contribute and what it currently is, but what it doesn't have to be, and what is, uh, is is problematic in it. And and two issues jump out for me here. The first is the strong, but I would see, contingent connection between science and narratives of endless uh, scientific or rather scientistic uh, technological and materialist progress. Uh, and then secondly, on the flip side, it's the existing uh, attitude or default um, response for science to potentially catastrophic futures and disasters, which sort of errs on the in the other direction, you know, turning away from it or, 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 or erring on the the, uh, the understatement. So perhaps we could just take these two issues quickly in turn. And first, then there's this imaginary or you know, let's be blunt here, this delusion of endless material progress and ever-increasing science-illuminated control and mastery of the world. Now, I don't think think we need to discuss that. Both of you guys probably agree with me that this is a deep problem. But how is the current model of science, would you say, complicit, or if not worse, uh, instrumental in the continuation and propagation of this view? Uh, and I don't know if this might be related to what you've called soft denialism. i
2: would just say to, by way of a, a preface, anyone who really wants to go into this, um, Wittgenstein and also to some extent Heidegger are great philosophers of this problem. And I've written very much in the Wittgensteinian vein about how how deeply progress is a, a, a potential illusion that uh, that structures our thinking and, and the, f- the form of course that it, that it tends to take that is most relevant to the question that you've asked David is in relation to uh, technology and what I call technophilia yes. the, the love of technology and the delusion that technology can solve everything which is itself possibly the strongest form of soft denialism which continues to persist after um, the hard climate denialism has been um, junked so that would be my kind of uh, contextualization for this. and maybe you want to take it a little bit further, Liam?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a, um, another way of saying it is that it's, uh, it's obviously a common criticism in the humanities that uh, science doesn't um, scientists often are not very good at looking at their cultural baggage. because um, even if you say a scientistic view one one version of scientific views is simply that we can have a complete knowledge of what's possible and you're, you're talking about a hubris that even can go beyond that mm-hmm. believe that if it's imaginable then science is capable of creating a way of of getting there right uh so not particularly being concerned with its own limits which of course science is supposed to be uh but oftentimes just isn't right there's a, a tendency to be hubristic and, and think that there are no limits or that there must be some way of getting to a desirable result if we just kind of try hard enough and think hard enough think and innovate enough, right and the idea that that is true is you know just a, a sort of an assumption there's nothing particularly scientific about it in uh you know the, 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 i suppose the purest sense but it's it's quite common within scientific circles, you know, the the lack of, of, uh, intellectual humility is, uh, is a, sort of a cultural and it, and it isn't again, you know, particularly something that's inherent in science, the method of just, well, looking at your results and checking them against observable facts. It's has more to do with, uh, the enlightenment and the belief that as Rupert's been saying that we're going to progress, uh, constantly, uh, because of, a larger and a more perfect body of knowledge.
0: Yeah, let's turn to the other side then. And uh, this is this will be a question for you, Rupert. Which is uh, another whole chapter in your new book is devoted to the issue of disasters, on the premise that truth telling means facing up to the fact that these are coming, and not just for the rest of the world, as it were, um, talking from the UK, but for us in the UK too. Uh, and but that actual science. Uh, on disaster gives us significant reason in fact not to despair and again this was just a a wonderful read. Could you first then just unpack this argument a bit? How, How do we currently by default think about or rather fear disasters and what is the basis or intellectual genealogy of that default view and then what does the actual evidence show that counters that perspective?
2: Yeah so in terms of the history of thought The key figure here in the background is arguably Thomas Hobbes, the uh, major um, political philosopher who is arguably at the root, actually, of the intellectual genealogy of liberal individualism. Uh, And he's given us the adjective Hobbesian. And what Hobbesian is, is a vision of uh, humanity, according to which, well, we're not very uh, humane. Uh, We are um, in a a permanent kind of state of competition uh, with one another. And this kind of default potential savagery allegedly is unveiled or unleashed uh, at times when societal order breaks down and everyone resorts to looting and so on and so forth. That's the image. That's the popular image And that is sometimes the basis for government policy, the assumption that Hobbesianism is basically true and that human beings are basically selfish and nasty and and brutish and so forth. Um, But what looking at disasters actually tends to tell us is that this isn't so. And that in the very, very difficult situations, obviously, that disasters unleash, what we tend to find is, is that human beings, when they're really tested, tend not to be like that. Now, disaster studies is a sort of combination of a kind of historically informed psychology and sociology and philosophy, and obviously it has the very particular topic of looking at what happens in disasters and looking at the actual facts of the matter and not just assuming that people behave in this Hobbesian way. And what you find, as I talk about in Why Climate Breakdown Matters, is that uh, across a wide spectrum of disasters, including uh, uh many natural disasters such as uh, earthquakes in the famous san francisco earthquake for example over a century ago if or if you're looking at the what happened in the wake of the twin towers uh collapsing uh almost anything which is sufficiently big um we're not talking about something which is just like an accident we're talking about a full-scale disaster actually enables human beings to, it would seem, to, to dip into their hidden resources, to access, for example, spontaneous forms of more or less communitarian or even, if you will, communist-type um, behavior, suspension of, of norms, suspension of, uh, of property norms, uh, uh, spontaneous acts of, uh, of generosity. Um, I encountered this uh, in a very personal way, and this started my interest in this, Uh, when I was in New York soon after September the 11th, and I said to a sort of um, left-leaning, green-leaning kind of friend there, oh dear, it must be so terrible being here during the Twin Towers uh, attacks because A, uh, you know, it was terrifying, uh, and B, you then had this upsurge of uh, horrible sort of uh, um, vengeful nationalism in response. And he said, well, that vengeful nationalism... That took a little while to emerge, and it was whipped up by the government and the media and so on. The actual spontaneous response of New Yorkers was completely different. And he said, he looked me in the eye. And he said to me, "It was the one time that the day and the days after the Twin Towers were hit. It was the one time I've ever felt living in New York like this was a community, hmm. and when people are actually human to each other. And if any, if you anyone here has has lived in New York as I have, you'll know what he is referring to. Not just kind of." The, the general kind of Hobbesian assumption is often made about human beings, but uh, the fact that New Yorkers are often thought to be an extreme variant of that, in terms of selfishness, individualism, um, money obsession, what status obsession, etc. He said, suddenly, all of that was taken away. Uh, and that really piqued my interest and led me to study the disasters and to see that this is very often the case. And sometimes it leads to complete societal transformation as a result, such as after the, the Mexican earthquake, what is it now, um, 35 uh, or so is it, years ago. Um, yeah, So yeah, that's basically the idea. What the actual study of disasters shows is something much, much more encouraging about uh, human beings than we've been led to believe. So given that we are tragically going to uh, experience a lot more climate disasters than we have done before... What I'm pointing to is a kind of massive potential silver lining to that, which could be potentially, if it's um, handled well, uh, transmogrified into a kind of uh, deepened kind of care and political conception, and ultimately and perception, and ultimately a sense of the the need, which of course once again is paramount to eventually reduce the root cause of the disaster. Because, of course, if the disasters just go on and on and on and run into each other and eventually what we're living in is nothing but one permanent gigantic disaster, Mm. you know, these forms of resilience that we have will presumably at some point be swept away. The point is to, if you will, make the most of them and the the love and care and so forth that they embody uh, before we ever get to that point. So the logic of the situation is kind of very similar to the logic of the situation vis-a-vis the, uh, the difficult uh, emotions and that's why my book has this uh, structure of, of taking one through these difficult things and saying look actually in these difficult things could lie our redemption
0: yeah just fantastic stuff um thank you rupert and i mean that leads up, i think nicely onto the, the the final thread which is this issue of building shared understanding and in particular, in terms of what you were just talking about, in, you know, that we, we have these assumptions and I've always understood philosophy to be, as it were, the the critical clear-eyed exploration of what it is that you already think, as it were, you know, the unpacking of uh, taking yeah. for granted assumptions and presuppositions yeah. and, uh, you know, holding them to light, holding them to account, uh, up, up against each other and, and then saying, well, I can't think that, even though I do, because it doesn't make sense. Uh, So, you know, what do I need to change here? So there's this whole issue of challenging existing understandings, for instance, in terms of Hobbesian assumptions. And this sticks to me very strongly with this final agenda of building shared understanding. So I understand this final one in terms of it being really very broad. I mean, it goes from the most concrete and personal, which is, building the shared understanding about how do we work together here and now, even you know the most sort of practical level of how do I deal with this difficult person who is part of my community, right up or down or out, whatever analogy or metaphor works for you, to the most abstract and visionary you know, in terms of what futures could we possibly be building towards, but also the, the re-examination and... Um, uh, uh, improvement of all these assumptions that we have and i see again that science is is crucial here f- uh, for instance in supporting uh, and even often being the central plank of that growing understanding i mean i think your example about the disasters is a very illustrative one that it obviously took someone with some clear s- clear-sightedness uh, d- being able to some, some emotional maturity to be able to actually look at disasters and what they found when they drew back the curtain was in many ways a lot less scary than they might have feared but they had to look so there was this empirical or, or, mm, or yeah. you know a posteriori uh, element of it which then allowed for the transformation of the, 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 the a priori uh, conceptions. Um, but I see um, three key issues here in particular. The first one is the extremely difficult challenges ahead that uh, we have of building, deepening community solidarity uh, and especially in a highly, at the, at the present, fragmented and polarised uh, context and there in explicitly pragmatic and non-utopian ways. So that's the, the first thing that I can see that science could really contribute to. The second one, which is a major challenge that you flag in the book, again, Rupert, is how respectably or seriously to talk about, let alone research, possibilities about uh, future civilizations, uh, successor civilizations, post-fall civilizations, without this being sort of written off as pseudoscience or or just pure speculation. And, And then thirdly, and perhaps most abstractly, is the shift from a science focused on privileging explanation or even just techno-economic utility to one that's grounded primarily in, in foregrounding understanding uh, understanding itself. So let's just very briefly then just go through those three points in turn. Uh, and the first one, just to remind you, was what are the challenges for building that necessary deepening of community solidarity, um, which the, the, the CMP quite rightly sees as so important how can science help and perhaps also hinder that
1: well i think one of the more important things there is really i mean so the the division is largely around ideology right uh and i think some of the most divisive um things that we have are sort of attachment to growth perspectives uh not to say uh, there's going to be a lot of discussion about whether we can grow or not uh in the future um, I think it's largely being quite clear about our attachments. That, um, in many ways, the science well modeled, like science's image of itself, can be uh, is, is a great thing for us to lean on in this regard. Because there is a lot of acceptance of at least science's image of itself: is all ideas are just ideas; they're all can be falsified. You mm-hmm. always want to be ready to let go of them. And so the idea that you know we can continue to grow. Uh, into the far future, at least the rates that we've we have been growing is something that needs a lot of questioning. Uh, obviously, also the political ideologies that we have right now, in terms of actually even on you know on the progressive end, look, we we sort of need to be able to let go of um, feeling that everybody needs to share our views of whether or not complete. Global justice is possible, right? Uh, it is, and this is a kind of a hard topic. Mm. But the reality yeah, is a whole it, other
0: podcast. Perhaps we can uh, get you back on that one. But uh, yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, it's only to say that there's a kind of view that any answer that doesn't include perfect global justice is unacceptable, right? So knowing when uh, we're entering into the, the mode of ideology and, and being able to question any assumption is extremely important uh for any of those those um discussions between unusual suspects or that uh branch across political divides. yeah Uh,
0: again i mean that's a really interesting point and i think again we can see the 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 overlapping or the threading of these different things i mean i I think a lot of that challenge that you've just mentioned the, the most efficient or effective uh way to deal with that is is uh, number two of your four threads, right, which is about you know being able to uh, deal with um, strong emotions. It's not to say that these are real issues that don't matter, but that it, in order for them t- to be framed in ways that actually prevent progress on issues and, disc- and meaningful discussion, a lot of that I think is emotional work, uh, perhaps rather than um, political work. Anyway, oh, absolutely. Just a
1: and, well, as I said in, when we were discussing Strand 2, right? Like letting go of the vision of the future that we already have is is basically a prerequisite to thinking about the future differently, right? Like we've mm-hmm. been doing all of this work on uh, a happiness economy, and people sort of wonder well, people are sort of sick of hearing about it, right? Yes. And it's, it's a small wonder why aren't the well being movements and the environmental movements will join at the hip? Well, people feel like they've been hearing about well-being economics for a very long time. And they—they they a lot of people have kind of made the decision that the population isn't ready for well-being economics. Well, they may be when they realize that it's going to be much easier to improve lives through other means than uh, material means over the next 20 years. Uh, I mean, I think I'm a little bit more less definite in my language than Rupert about that because I think we need to be agnostic in our discussions so i'm always sort of trying to stand mm. for well look let's not ask anybody to trust us to a conclusion sure. to to accept a conclusion but just start from uh first principles and ha- and with an open mind and having having arguments which is a classic scientific approach yeah. and see where we end up right
0: so i think that that leads on nicely to the second question then this is a question for you, I guess, Rupert, because it comes from the book, which is you. You say in the book that um, discussion about successor civilizations strikes you as a, a real problem. Even as intellectual work on that question is perhaps one of the most pressing uh, things that we should be thinking about. What did you mean when you wrote that? What what is the obstacle to doing that kind of thinking?
2: This is so important and huge. I'll just say two quick things uh, about it. The first thing to say is I think it is kind of an indictment of our existing culture of science that it's been so poor at really in any remotely serious way getting... To this question. And here is one area where Ian McGillchrist's work really helps us to, to think because basically, if we didn't have um, such a scientific um, um, culture of science and if we didn't have such a siloed culture, then these kinds of vital, forward looking, interdisciplinary, ambitious questions would be far more central and legitimate than they are. But we are where we are. So that takes us to my second point, which is I think it is absolutely incumbent upon potential would-be thought leaders and organic intellectuals such as ourselves and on philosophers such as myself uh, and also on anyone tasked, as it were, with imagination, such as writers and artists, to address this question. And I just want to dwell on that latter part of of the point, that... I think that there is a huge task, which has, again, not really been much more than begun outside certain areas of science fiction uh, in looking at this. And any uh, artist or creative listening, listening, I would say the task of seeking to design what I call through which are pictures of how we could get through what is coming, which are not merely dystopian, but nor are they utopian, because utopias are now... Uh, unavailable uh, mm-hmm. to us uh, because of the uh, how far down the road we are and how long past midnight it is, that, that the design of such throughtopias, the thinking, the attempt to imagine the, the future, including what will happen after this civilization comes to an end, uh, is an absolutely uh, uh, vital, uh, literally vital task. And we, when we're seeking to imagine the civilization which will succeed this one, and hopefully that will be not by way of collapse, and when we're imagining thereby the task, if you will, the telos of something like the Climate Majority Project, we have to be doing that in a serious way if we are to have as much direction as we could really use to have uh, to orient our tangible, practical actions. So this is one of the ways that Strand 4, in terms of shared understanding and sense-making, is obviously a critical ingredient which feeds back into the earlier parts of the conversation.
0: I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much for saying that, Rupert. But that, I think, leads us nicely on to the, the, the final of these three points, which is about this word understanding, which I'm very drawn to uh, in this, uh, this final um, of the four threads. Um, I'm interested in one thing to start off with. is It is the last one, that your three threads, to the extent that there is a sort of an organic um, logic to the truth-telling, to the em- emotional uh, maturity to then the action. The understanding is the last one, not the action. Uh, I, and I think that's perhaps surprisingly uh, significant. Tell us a little bit more there. What is understanding specifically uh, in this case? Is there a significance for why it's last rather than action? And, and and how can we encourage a culture of understanding with with science playing a role in that?
1: Well, I mean, to be honest with you, we don't. We, we regard them as not linearly cre- uh, ordered, right? I mean, sure, like sci- the scientific
0: process. N- not linear, but you know, there's a, a um, even if there's a sort of a, a cyclic nature to this, right. right? there's there's an entry point, and it's not that there's a, a, an end point, but that right. the the end point, uh, the last one is you know the the rebasing of, and you do it all again, so yeah I'm, I'm not trying to say it's linear at all.
1: Yeah I, I th- well certainly the truth I think the truth is it becomes first because that's the jarring bit where you say, oh, okay, it's an interruption on these type these strands are involved in literally everything. Uh, and the problem is maybe in the climate response, uh, we, we tend to go truth action rather than okay, truth action truth hold the truth uh start acting mm. and at the same time look at your actions and reconsider so i mean if you took a scientific perspective which i do to some extent my explanation of, of why we ordered them that we would have a lot to do with the fact that this is um the experiments in some ways are obvious which may go back to the last question about um successive civilizations that you have to start ex- doing stuff and then look at uh the immediate results when you're dealing with an open system like uh society that uh we can start acting on a lot of things right now there's a lot of things which are going to be obvious Mm -hmm. uh, as far as uh what to do next uh but then the medium term is challenging right we have to conduct experiments uh in terms of real world action look at the result and make sense of those and the the sense making process in some ways you know it it feel it felt right last because we're always the sense making is a gesture towards the far future towards the fact that we have to really start without knowing where we're going we do not know where we're going right
0: yeah excellent okay what a wonderful conversation we've covered so much, uh, so much more. We could still talk about no doubt, but let's wrap it up. So the final question again to you, and I'll put this to you, Liam, which is if we're going over the cliff and we urgently need amongst other things, a new science for the Anthropocene, will we learn to fly?
1: I guess we don't know where we're going. So we'll, we'll find out, uh, you know, we're, we're going to learn to fly. Uh, as best we can, and we'll, we'll see how much we fly or not. Um, I think a lot of it, though, what I like about this analogy uh, in many ways is that I picture a bird, mm-hmm. and I feel that there is a kind of uh, doing the climate majority project over the last year, there is a kind of instinctive uh, spreading of the wings and realizing, okay, but this is the only way to go about it. Nobody knows how to do something like this. Nobody knows how to uh, create a mainstream uh, climate response in order to lead institutions to serious climate action. Uh, But when everybody realizes that, hey, that's actually what's necessary, it's the only thing that makes any sense, um, there's a kind of solidity uh, without ground under our feet anyways.
0: Absolutely. Liam and Rupert, thank you so much for a fantastic discussion.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, goodbye. Thanks. And
0: thank you also for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this discussion as much as I have. And if you have, please tell just one friend about this podcast and join us next time. Thanks very much.